Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our Shavuot Tikkun opening plenary session, Sanctification of Space. Hi everyone. Hello to those who are joining uh, in person and those who are joining on Zoom. We've got a nice crowd on Zoom as well. Two years into this, we're still getting used to this hybrid way of being, right? So it's so nice to see your faces and I'm going to be trying to look at all of you and I also want to kind of look at you too so that you all feel that you're a part of it. Um, but this is really an, a, a nice gathering and I'm already, I want to express gratitude uh, from the outset. Uh, to my friends and, and colleagues as as uh, students of, of Jewish reality, to David and to Nomi, um, whom I first got to know actually, probably at this point, 17, 18 years ago, before I even had an inkling that I'd ever be a rabbi here, got to know as they were beginning some of their research into the Satmar community of uh, Kiras Joel, which is in the town of Monroe, New York, where I served for nine years. And in some ways, this is a long time coming that we're able to talk uh, together about our experience of that community, I from the experiential side and them from the experiential and the scholarly side. So what I'm going to do is is really tell a few stories about uh, my years there and set the scene for what it was like to share Jewish life in the Jewish neighborhood. You can't hear? What it was like to share a Jewish life in the in Jewish neighborhood with, you know, when I was there, about 25,000 Satmar Hasidim living in the, in the village by now. Well, what time is it? Now it's uh, 34,000 or something like that. Um, brief history, which is interesting, which I'm, I'm sure they will get into in more detail. So at some time in the late 70s, Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, who was the undisputed chief rabbi of Satmar Hasidim. Satmar, by the way, is an interesting name because it's, it sounds like a very kind of Jewish-Yiddish name. It's from the way the Jews pronounced the name of Romania, where they were from, which was Satumare, which was named for Saint Mary. So Satmar Hasidim is really Saint Mary Hasidim, which is kind of interesting. Uh, they were living in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and had been there for a generation and a half. And the Rebbe woke up one morning and said, you know, in Romania, we lived in the hills and in villages. We didn't live in Bucharest, in the center city. We should move there, right? And when you're a Hasidic Rebbe and you say, hey, let's move to upstate New York, they come with you. If I said, hey, let's move to upstate New York, I would be moving by myself, right? I can't imagine that a significant percentage of Temple Bethan would follow me wherever I wanted to move, uh, although maybe I would try it someday. Um, and so they founded this village of the town of Monroe. So the town of Monroe, about 45 miles northwest of Manhattan in Orange County, New York, beyond Rockland County. It's the same county where West Point exists, by the way, if you want to just uh, think about it geographically. And the town of Monroe has three villages. One of the villages is the village of Monroe in the town of Monroe. One of the villages is the village of Harriman. And one of the villages of the town of Monroe is Kiryas Joel. Kiryas, which is a Yiddishization of the word Kiryat, which means village of, and Joel is actually, interestingly, an English pronunciation of his name, Yol, or Yoilish, or Yoili. So Kiryas Joel is one of the villages. And when I was looking for my first pulpit at a rabbinical school, I was considering a, pulp, a, um, a Hillel position uh, at Duke University. I was considering a pulpit position in Connecticut, where I was from. Uh, I was investigating Monroe, and one of the selling points for me was that you got, as a traditional rabbi, the simultaneous overlap of a bucolic, rolling hills, pastoral, beyond suburban existence, 
with kosher pizza and mikvahs and bookstores. And usually it's one or the other, right? It's very, there are not many uh, places where you can serve as a rabbi and you have both greenery, like real greenery, um, and all of the Jewish needs you, you'd want to have met. It wasn't obviously the only thing that attracted me, but it was not a nothing. And in the nine years that I was there, obviously I didn't serve that community, I had a lot of interactions, some wonderful, some not wonderful, a lot neutral with uh, some of the Satmar community um, that lived there. My most regular interaction with them was going to Daily Minion. I'm a Minion Jew. I will choose to daven with almost any category of Minion rather than daven by myself most times. I like davening with Jews. It doesn't really matter to me you know, what flavor or denomination of Jews they are. And in my former congregation, which was a small shul in a rural rural slash suburban setting, we didn't have the capacity to have a daily minion every morning. We had a Sunday morning minion and a Rosh Chodesh minion, but, and we had to struggle to get that, but I like to daven with a minion. So in Monroe, in Kiras Joel, you can choose your minion. I mean, at any given morning in Kiras Joel, it's probably not an exaggeration to say there are 500 minionim taking place. I would generally daven in one of two places. There was a whole warren of rooms in what was called the Rebetzin's house after Rabbi Joel Teitelman passed away. Thank you. Um, his Rebetzin uh, lived for, I forgot how many years, but a good number of years after him. And then when she died, where the, the building in which she lived, which is the back of the, of the huge Beit Midrash there, essentially got connected to one of the two major groups in Satmar Hasidut, because when Rabbi Teitelman died, he left no male heirs, like in, in um, Lubavitch. And to this day, there is a terrible, bitter, brutal divide over authority and money and real estate between two of his nephews. Some of the people in, uh, divide themselves by, on their, by their loyalty to the Rebetzin, and so they were considered the dissidents, and they operated this whole system. So I would drop my kids off at the bus for day school, I would park, and depending on you know, whether the bus was late or not, I would either make the 708 minion in this room, or the 711 minion in this room, or the 714 minion in this room, or the 717. Every three minutes was a minion starting a different room. And I got to know some of the buffers. And uh, for me, it was actually great, because I would daven. No one was bothering me with any questions. Not that it's not bothered when people ask me questions at minion. I love it. Please ask me questions. But I got to be a Jew. I was in, tr in a tremendous Beit Midrash, where every book I could possibly want was on the shelf. I would start thinking of my Divrei Torah there. I would work on my Torah reading there. I got to drink bad coffee there for almost no money. It was a perfect situation. And sometimes I would often daven uh, uh, at a little shtibel that was founded by a guy named Reb Yosef. I never knew his last name. Oh, no, I did. Reb Yosef Hirsch. He, what did he do? He had a mikvah. He had a shul. He sold wine before Yantif, and he sold Aravot before Hoshana Rabbah, and that's how he made a living. He was also a dissident. Um, and the reason I got there is because another member of my community who, had all, who also was committed to Daily Minion who had started to daven there. Very interesting place. When he was there, he was one in charge, and I was there on a Torah reading day, he would give me an aliyah to the Torah. That is not a small thing for a Satmar Jew to give a knowing apostate like me. And from his perspective, I was an, a heretic, an apostate, and a leah to the Torah. He would not let me daven from the bima because you need to have a beard in Satmir custom, no matter what your ideology is. You cannot lead davening from the bima unless you have a beard. He would give me an leah to the Torah. When he wasn't there, when he was traveling, his number two, who I can picture, uh, I could picture his face, not only would not give me an aliyah, he wouldn't count me in a minion. 
there were times when I was there and I was the 10th. It brought me a little bit of schadenfreude to know that even Satmer Minyanim sometimes need, you know, need to put the WhatsApp chat out, hey, we need a 10th. So Michael, you have, a, you have a parallel in the Satmer community of someone who's trying to gather a minion. I would get there on time. We'd get to the first Kaddish. We'd only have nine, plus me. They'd skip over the Kaddish and go to the next part. So when I would think about Rev Yosef and his, um, and his number two, it reminded me, or it, it produced this um, a, a, a tiny bit off-color aphorism that I would say when people ask me what, what the Satmar Chassidim are like in Kiras Joel. And I said that the schmuck tzaddik ratio there is about the same as I witnessed in most other combinations of human beings. Right? Satmar Chassidut does not ensure that you're going to be a tzaddik, nor does it prevent it, and it certainly doesn't prevent you from, you know, have it being, being a boor. Um, and my relationship with the folks there had to do mostly with the, 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 the quality of people that I encounter with, not necessarily their specific ideology. Um, the fact that I was a conservative rabbi, a conservative Jew, most of them didn't know much about what that meant. They knew it wasn't them, and they knew I wasn't young Israel. But if they were bothered by that, there was, it was something that, that they were much, much more bothered by than that. And I didn't realize that until the first time I walked into uh, that minion on the Monday after the Sunday where we had had a countywide Yom Hatzma'ut festival. This was probably 2001, and we had a countywide Yom Hatzma'ut festival, and there were rides and blah, blah, blah. And remember when uh, the, the, um, the Live Strong bracelets were common, like those, I don't know what they were made of, those, those plastic rubber bracelets? We had given out, you know, Israel at 60 bracelets, and that was your token from coming to the festival. And I, that even, not consciously, I just put it on my arm. I walked into the Beit Midrash the next day, just thinking I was going to go to my normal spot and put on fill-in, and all eyes were on me. Because they saw my blue and white little bracelet with Magain Davids on it, and as probably Israeli flags, that was prohibited. I basically had to take it off. I could bring my conservative self in. I could not bring my Zionist self in because one of the principal um, philosophical positions of Satmar Hasidim and amongst other uh, sects is a, is a, a real virulent anti-Zionism. Um, I met some really interesting folks there. There was one guy, I wish I could remember his name. His first name was Velvel, but I forgot his last name, that I was connected to by my predecessor at the synagogue who... <laughs> This was not an official position, but unofficially, he was the Jew in Kirash Joel who knew everything about the Jewish world out of Kirash Joel. Most of the Jews there were totally insular. They could care less. They'd probably, they'd never heard of Reformed Judaism probably and, and had no idea even who like Rabbi Elliot Dorf was. How can you not know who Rabbi Elliot Dorf was? This guy did. I brought um, a group of my students to him. To, we, were, we, were, we, were, we were doing a, a section on Hasidut, and we were learning about different sects, and we had a, an encounter with him. He was telling me things about like demographic trends in the progressive movements in America that were ahead of my knowledge of it. It's like he was the spy. He was, he was reading the forward and reading the Jewish journal and, and, and reading everything and, and, I don't know, maybe distilling the stuff that needed to be transmitted to the leaders. He, he knew Elliot Dorf and Gordon Tucker and about JTS and... and, and Velvet Goldberg. Yes, thank you. You know his name. Um, so that was really fascinating to, to meet... Um, to, to meet someone like him. A few, more, a few more things. By definition, this is a community that is constantly growing. I made a joke about it before. It's no joke, right? How many new housing units do they need in Karis Joel every single year? 
depends on how many girls are graduating their high school. That's, I mean, a some might move to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, but the number of girls at age 18 who are graduating the high schools are the number of girls who are getting married in that community that year and the number of people who will need a new place to live. So it is, it's an exponential growth. It's impossible for that not to cause enormous controversy in a small town, pastoral, upstate New York place. And it's impossible for what starts as concern over what one's hometown is turning into, for that not to spread a little bit into passive and active anti-Semitism. Some of it, unfortunately, earned. Because in addition to the actual policies that they promulgate and the way that they are using the political system, and every American is entitled to use a political system, sometimes it doesn't always come off positively in terms of how, how, how Jews are operating, and they are, um, uh, they are unapologetically and 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 certainly Jewish, right? They, they, there's no way to dis to distinguish them or separate them from Jewishness. I remember when Noah, my oldest, was now 20, when she was about two or three, we were in the bank one day, and um, um, we had told her because she'd asked what you know these people who are walking around the town of Monroe and Lake Monroe, who are they? And we told them that they're Jews, and she was very shocked because she thought that this is what Jews look like. She had no idea that that's what those Jews look like. But she was excited that all those people she was seeing in the supermarket, whatever, were Jews. We're in the bank, waiting in line. I don't know, three or four Satmar Hasidim walked in. She was two or three years old. She pointed to them and she said, Jews, <laughs> Jews, Jews. She was excited. They were not excited. But the reason why I shared that is that because of the way they dress and the way they live their lives, it's impossible to separate their, the growth of their village from the Jewish character of their identity. And that makes for some really challenging things, which I know we'll get into in a little bit. Last thing I'll share before I'll stop. My last day, I, I had told the Gabai of the Rebetzin's Warren that I was moving, and I had been a regular there for years. And I said to him, you know, my last day coming to Davin, you guys, is this coming Monday, and then we're driving across country, and he'd ask some questions about where we're going. When I walked into Minyan that last day, just expecting to say goodbye to him, I was blown away. If you've ever spent time in Meya Sharim or in a Hasidic community, the way community news is shared is on these white pieces of paper, eight and a half by 11, and, and words usually in Yiddish, you know, telling you that someone's died and this is where they're gonna be buried and this is the Shiva, or this is where a bris is taking place, or this is where an offer is taking place, or, or this Rebbe is coming to visit, right? Like it's just plastered a Hasidic neighborhood, whether you're in Muncie or Mer Sharim, with those announcements in Yiddish. I walked in, I got my usual seat, I started putting on my tefillin, and all the buchers started like, you know, kind of like pointing to me and smiling or poking at me and making me making me look up. Well, I didn't know what was going on. So the entire Beit Midrash was filled with about a hundred of these flyers that looks, that are, the design is exactly the same, I'll show it to the people on Zoom, of the ones that would be announcing this person's bris, this person's shiva. And what did it say? And it's significant, it was written in Hebrew so that I would understand it, not in Yiddish. Bezrat Hashem Yitbarach, with the help of God, the Holy One. Seitchem Shalom, go in peace. Ba'otot kavod v'ikar, with symbols of honor and glory. Hinenu mishagrim kisei debirchata. We kind of send out or extend our, our, uh, our, coast, our, our cup of blessing. Lechvod harav, 
in honor of the rabbi, Hamushlam, the perfect rabbi. Remember that, folks. The Malot of Midot Tavot, who has great qualities. Harav Adam Moshe Klickfeld, Rabbi Adam Moshe Klickfeld. Shlita. Shlita is, an, is a name that gets appended to a great rabbi in a community. It stands for Sheyichiel Chaim Tovim Barokim. May he live many, many years. Rav Be'ir Monroe, New York, the rabbi of Monroe, New York. Asher Allah Venitale, who has risen up and has been has ascended, Lechahen Far Karav Rashi, who has been invited to be the chief rabbi, California, in the great synagogue of California. There's more stuff in there also. I was blown away. They were not laughing at me. They were, this was not ironic. This was their saying, on my, in my own way, I had earned my place in that minion, and they were sending me off with a blessing. And it was, to this day, one of the most endearing moments I've had as a Jew or as a rabbi. It's a very complicated, complex community, and that's my experience of them. And now I introduce David and Nomi to talk about their research into this uh, fascinating group of Jews, and then we'll engage in a little bit of Q&A. Please. Thank you. Um, really delightful to hear your um, impressions, some of which I'll um, provide my own Rashi to um, as we continue. But um, I, I know not everybody knows. Nomi and I wrote a book on this community, Curious Stroll, New York. Uh, that is the result of uh, about 20 years of research, a little under 20 years of research. Um, and um, we can talk about what got us into it um, and uh, what our reception was, but I, I do want to just lay out some sort of uh, a basic framework for your understanding. So Kyrus Joel, as Rabbi Klickfeld said, is a legally recognized municipality in the state of New York. It began as um, uh, a neighborhood in the town of Monroe. Um, it now has separated from the town of Monroe. So it's no longer a village in the town of Monroe. It's now a village in the town of Palm Tree, which is the English translation for the name Teitelbaum, which is the name of the uh, founding family of the Satmar Hasidic dynasty. And this brings us back to uh, the northeast quadrant of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the late 19th century. If we try and trace the origins of Curious Joel, we have to go back to um, before 1920, when uh, that town became Satumari, which actually, I'm afraid to say, doesn't mean St. Mary, it means great village, but many, it's become part of the urban legend of Satumari that it means sort of as a, as a kind of piece of delicious irony that the place of one of the most strident forms of, of Hasidism took rise in a town that people have come to think means St. Mary. Anyway, it's really um, a Hungarian community. The operative cultural backdrop to Satmar is Hungary and Hungarian culture. Um, and Hungary in the latter half of the 19th century was a fascinating laboratory, really an incubator for the formation of what has come to be known as Haredi Judaism. It stood at the juncture of currents of a kind of neo-traditionalism making its way from the east, of which Hasidism was an essential part and modern enlightenment currents coming from the West. And just imagine uh, a clash of these vectors um, somewhere between uh, Budapest and Bucharest, um, but further north. So in uh, an area that uh, is known as the Hungarian Unterland, also known as Transylvania, there took rise a particularly uh, potent form of Haredi Judaism, a kind of neo-traditionalism uh, that uh, 
was a modern movement devoted to a decidedly anti-modern agenda. Um, and one of the most prominent families um, and forces in that new Haredi culture in Hungary was the Teitelbaum family, which from its inception, from the arrival in the uh, early 19th century of the progenitor of the vaunted Teitelbaum line, a man by the name of Rabbi Moshe Teitelbaum Nismach Moshe, was renowned for its combativeness, its extreme commitment to engage in combat in order to create a pure world in which one could live as the expression recurs again and again in Satmar, according to Der Israel Sava, according to the path of the ancient Israel. Now, this is interesting um, because it is part of the kind of mythology that surrounds Satmar. Um, I'll just briefly give an outline of the sort of the, the, the important uh, give a timeline so they can make our way to a, such an important piece of, of the mythology that figures centrally in the title of our book. So Joel Teitelbaum, uh, the descendant of the Ismach Moshe, is born in 1887 uh, in a town called Sigit, also a major center of Haredi Judaism, um, makes his way um, after uh, uh, receiving smicha to a variety of towns, Warsaw and Krula, in uh, this region of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, makes his way to a town called Satmar um, uh, in 1920, um, but was not destined to stay there until 1928, when he is elected town rabbi of Satmar, which by that point had reverted to Romania. After the uh, end of the First World War and the dismantling of major global empires, the Ottoman, the Russian, and the Austro-Hungarian, we have a number of successor states take rise, like Czechoslovakia or uh, uh, Poland, uh, out of the kind of husk of these great world empires. Hungary was chopped up into many pieces, and this Hungarian town of Satmar uh, became Romania. Joel Teitelbaum was elected town rabbi in 1928, but because of the ferocity of the opposition to him, he waited six years before he came to Satmar uh, to serve as town rabbi. And that's really important because Satmar Hasidism is a very new form of Hasidism. Other Hasidic movements take rise in the early 19th century. This really begins in 1934 and lasts 10 years in Europe until the alliance between Hitler and the Hungarian leader, Admiral Horthy, is broken because in 1940, this area reverted back to Hungary and therefore it fell once again under Hungarian rule. Um, and uh, Hungarian Jews who thought they had and would escape the worst of uh, the Nazi assault on, on Europe uh, were um, uh, set upon by uh, Nazi German forces and, and, uh, and deported en masse within, within three or four months. Joel Teitelbaum, uh, manages to escape, and in a, a, a turn of great historical irony, he's saved by a Zionist, even though he was arguably the most well-known, notorious uh, Jewish anti-Zionist of the 20th century. Makes his way, in another kind of interesting turn of historical irony, first to Switzerland, then to Palestine, uh, to be a, an important part of the Eidah Haredit, the Haredi community, and then on the second day of Rosh Hashanah in 1946, comes to the United States, settles in uh, a northern Brooklyn neighborhood called Williamsburg, and begins to establish, as they call them, the Moistus, the Mosadot, the institutions 
of a reconstituted Satmar community. Already from the beginning, he says, we're going to settle here, but we need, an, we need a, a kind of satellite community outside of New York, away from the seductions and allures of a teeming urban metropolis. And thus begins the quest to create what is understood in Satmar lore as a shtetl. That's the vision. And here's the sort of fantastic piece of imagination of Satmar, the kind of mythologizing, as Adam suggested. What, what Joel Teitelbaum and his associates conjured up when they thought of a shtetl was um, sort of the, the image of a shtetl we might have from Fiddler on the Roof, a self-contained, homogenous, from um, a politically united uh, community until sort of the late stages when things begin to fall apart. And in fact, Satmar Satumari bore no resemblance whatsoever to that ideal. That was a kind of mythic creation in the minds of Satmar Hasidim that they wanted to reinvent their shtetl of yore. Really, they invented a shtetl drawn not from history, but from literature and their own creative imagination. Um, it was very hard to find a place uh, to set up that shtetl because it turns out many people in the greater metropolitan area in suburban New York and New Jersey aren't that keen on selling their land to uh, a group of foreign-looking and foreign-speaking Satmar Hasidim. This was the experience that was repeated again and again and again until Satmar, the Satmars got smart and engaged the brother-in-law of sort of the chief lay leader of the community to serve as the front man for the purchase of real estate, which took place uh, in 1972 in Orange County, New York, in the town of Monroe, when the first uh, uh, plots of land were, were bought. And in very surreptitious fashion, um, over two years, the first 80 garden apartments and the first 25 single-family homes were put up in the town of Monroe as a kind of discrete neighborhood set apart from the rest of town. And the, the vision was to create, um, you know, a, a, a kind of enclave um, uh, where people could retreat if they wanted to escape the city and live this kind of holistic, organic, insular life. But, uh, and Rabbi Klickfeld alluded to this, um, relations between Satmar Hasidim in this area and their neighbors um, have been fraught um, almost from the inception. Um, and the lawyers amongst you will appreciate this. Um, the first debates and, 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 and battles took rise over zoning regulations. Um, what does it mean to have a single family home? Like if you have two families, each of whom has 10 to 15 members who live in one home. Is that a single family home? Well, certainly not according to the classic American suburban ideal, right? The idyllic suburban home is, you know, a four person family. Can you put a matzah bakery or a mikveh or uh, a uh, kindergarten in the basement of a garden apartment? Well, not according to the officials of the town of Monroe who resisted at every turn, sent inspectors who the Satmars believed were sort of unfairly peering into the privacy of their lives. And uh, conflicts developed, threats of litigation 
um, were flying back and forth. Uh, certainly two years in, by 1976, uh, there was a major threat of, uh, uh, of a huge legal conflagration, a threat of a religious discrimination lawsuit brought by the Sotmers against the residents and officials of Monroe that was scheduled for October 26, 1976, in federal district court. And in order to avert that, um, at, uh, that the commencement of that trial, a deal was hatched, one Motzei Shabbos, a meeting that lasted from uh, 10 o'clock at night until 6 o'clock in the morning, to create a self-standing village uh, within the town of Monroe that would be able to regulate its own zoning. And thus came to life um, not the shtetl of Kiryashtil, but the village of Kiryashtil. So part of what we tried to trace is the transformation from this ideal of a shtetl to the reality of a legally recognized village. What really interested me in the story, and Nomi preceded me by decades in her interest in the phenomenon, was the idea that you have not just a self-contained, homogeneous group of Hasidic Jews who create a place of their own, but it, that it was recognized by the state. That is really unprecedented in the annals of Jewish history in the diaspora in the modern age. Right? We can talk about the experiment of Birobijan in, in the Soviet Union, but it's an impossibility in Europe. Right? It's just an impossibility. It would never be permitted uh, to accord to a, a group of religious Jews autonomy, a form of local sovereignty uh, over, their, uh, uh, over their life. So what was so interesting to me was the unprecedented quality uh, of this uh, effort, this attempt, this experiment. And yet we discovered there was another half to the story, and that gets to the other half of the title of our book, American Shtetl. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'll take it from there. Um, so much of the book is the story of this summer village. But at the same time, the book is really a story about America. And what is it about American society, about the interlocking legal and economic and political systems of the United States that proved to be so hospitable to the Sotmer separatist project. Um, <clears throat> so one of the central theses of the book is precisely that, that American society has been extremely hospitable and supportive and even facilitative of the rise of this, as David said, not merely private enclave, but a private enclave that was able to transform itself into a political entity, a municipality. That's from one point of view. I hope, I, I hope once you finish the book that it seems completely obvious <laughs> why American society was so receptive to the creation of this kind of insular, homogeneous, strictly observant community. But it's a proposition that really flies in the face of a lot, several overlapping discourses, according to which 
American society, and more specifically, uh, a society that is based on a commitment to, in a classical sense, liberalism, that is to say, a commitment to the rights of the individual, the autonomy and freedom of the individual, a society that is committed to the separation of religion and state, a secular society. Precisely in the time period in which this community was taking rise, you saw several different streams of discourse um, proclaiming that such a society, far from being hospitable, is hostile to the existence of traditional religious communities. The discourse of communitarianism, the discourse of multiculturalism, and the discourse of many traditional uh, religious communities, all subjected liberalism, and, in, and more specifically, American-style liberalism, to critique. And there were two components to that critique. There was a normative component, and there was an empirical component. The core empirical claim was precisely that a liberal society constitutes an existential threat to traditional religion, to holistic, organic communities that it threatens them with extinction, that the prioritization of the rights of the individual over the rights of groups, over traditional forms and sources of authority, that this was going to lead to secularization and to the extinction of traditional religious groups. That, that was essentially a predictive claim now, there was also a normative claim that this was lamentable, but there was quite widespread agreement that as just a matter of fact, liberalism posed this kind of existential threat to traditional religious communities. And what we see is precisely the opposite. What we argue is precisely the opposite. Indeed, that the very features of American society that seem to be most hostile to traditional communities and traditional forms of authority turned out to be the most essential building blocks for the Sotmer village, for the Sotmer project of creating the village of Curious Joel in particular, and for other traditional religious communities seeking to create their own separate enclaves and to be politically empowered as such. To put it the other way around, the very features of the village of Curious Joel that seem most un-American are the features that could only have been produced in America. And David alluded to this, right? So the shtetl of yore, the shtetls of Europe, Satumare, but virtually every shtetl, these were places of heterogeneity. These were places where Jews lived amongst Gentiles and where within the Jewish community, there was tremendous heterogeneity. In Satumare, not all of the Jews of Satumare were followers 
of the Satma Rebbe. Far from it. There were many different versions of Judaism, and of course, there were secular forms of Judaism. So the degree of homogeneity that we witness in Curious Joel, the degree of insularity, the degree of adherence to an extremely stringent uh, 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 form of religious observance, as David suggested, these, this, is, this is unprecedented. This is nothing like um, the shtetls of Europe. It's far more homogeneous, far more separatist, far more beholden to one single uh, 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 source of authority um, and form of Judaism. So what was it about America <laughs> that, that created such an unprecedented degree of homogeneity? As I've suggested, it's, it's the very features of American society that were thought to be inimical. First and foremost, a, a, a political philosophy of limited government and individual rights, which include in addition to individual right of freedom of religion, freedom of belief, freedom of association, the individual rights to private property and freedom of contract a commitment to the free market. So what we see illustrated, sort of the origin story of Curious Joel, as David alluded to, is what we call the private pathway to political empowerment, or what we otherwise refer to as communitarianism from the bottom up. The private pathway to the creation of this kind of community begins with the acquisition of private property, the acquisition of real estate, how do you do that in the United States of America? Well, you need capital. You need money. You invest capital, you acquire property, you develop property. As private agents, you control to whom property is sold and who, who is allowed to settle on that property. So it turns out that the very features of American society that are the most individualistic, the building blocks of the free market, created a pathway that the Satmars, notwithstanding the fact that per capita are quite poor, are indeed amongst the poorest of communities in the United States of America, they were nonetheless precisely by virtue of their, you might say, illiberal character, their highly organized character, their willingness to pool their resources. They were able to purchase property, settle the property, and then they were able to use the mechanisms of local democracy, liberal democracy, the franchise, to vote into existence a legally incorporated village. Now there's more specific stories to tell. This is very much a Reagan era story about the rise of the religious right, the Christian-led religious right, and the conservative legal and political movement more generally that created changes in the way that the Supreme Court interprets the First Amendment and other areas of law that proved to be extremely conducive to the Sotmers project. This is also a story about attacks on a more integrationist version of liberalism coming from the left as well, multiculturalism, and more left-wing versions of communitarianism. 
So there are more specific details that we would love to share with you. And if you read the book, you can see them. But it's in that sense that this is a very American story. And we really see the village of Curious Joel as a very American phenomenon, an American shtetl, unlike any shtetl seen in Europe. Can I ask a question on that? Because uh, um, I haven't yet read the book, and that's a fascinating take. And and you're you're the scholars of the topic, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm the one who walked the streets. Is it your sense that that the ways in which the Satmar project made uses of the liberal American apparatus was in a an admirable way or a parasitic way, right? Because it seems to me that they made uses of it, but in an exploitative way, not in the ways that that liberal um, infrastructure in America was intended to be used. And we've seen lots of times in our country recently where the the the, the liberal democratic forms only work as they're intended to work if the people who are 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 using them are using them in general with the right intentions. So do you consider this to be a triumph of American liberalism? Because look, look how hospitable it was to even a group as um, differentiated from American liberalism as possible, or is this a weakness in American liberalism because look what it permitted? Mm -hmm. I will give you my take. I mean, I, it, it reflects, I would say, a blind spot in liberalism, um, which is to say liberalism can support and tolerate decidedly illiberal manifestations. That's sort of the, the sort of the the limit case of liberalism is 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 that quality that it precisely empowers and enables illiberal forms of community to use the instrumentalities of liberal legal and political um, uh, power. Um, you know, what we say at the outset of the book is we come neither to condemn nor to condone. So is it admirable or parasitic? I, I should say, and you, I'm sure you saw this, Adam, that parasitic is something that is a descriptor that was used very frequently against uh, Satmar Hasidic Jews, and it really uh, took, uh, it really resonates in very ugly fashion in, in sort, of the, sort of the back and forth between, uh, between Kiris Joel and, and its neighbors. Um, so I, I guess I would say this. Um, there is a game that's called American interest group politics. It's a game that lots of people play. It's a game that lots of lobbying organizations play. It's a game that lots of interest groups play. Um, the rules of the game are if you can accrue resources, electoral and financial, uh, to sway those in positions of power, then you win. Um, that's the nature of the game. And it turns out Satmar Hasidim played it very well. Hmm. Now, it's interesting to note that there was already in Europe a commitment, a dual set of commitments to in the soccer world. One, to combat any form of impurity, certainly heresy, that they found within the Jewish world. So extreme combativeness within the Jewish world. And a commitment to accommodate to and engage Gentile political officials in order to advance the interests of the community. So hold on to those two pieces because they're, they're part of a single political sensibility. Um, it extends back that latter tradition to the, the tradition of the Shtadlan, of the intercessor uh, who represents the interests of the Jewish community uh, with the Gentile authorities. But in the United States, that impulse to engage and accommodate 
um, went into overdrive. And it's interesting to ask why. One, because America was very different than Europe. It operated according to genuinely liberal principles in ways that Europe didn't. Two, Satmar Hasidim saw the opportunity as a result of that and sought to seize upon it. Some might say exploit it. And that is because of three, they felt a sense of entitlement after what they had experienced. Three quarters of the community uh, was, uh, was murdered in the Holocaust. There was um, a dual sense of, uh, of an opportunity and a, an entitlement to seize upon the instrumentalities of power in order to uh, bring back to life, repopulate a community that had almost been exterminated. There was a sense of moral virtue that supported that. Um, and at the same time, there's also a strong belief, which I, I wonder if you heard uh, when you were there, Adam, there's a sense the United States was special. It was a machut chesed. It was a kingdom of grace uh, that Satmar Hasidim believed was different than any other place that certainly they had been in. So all of these elements together, I think, um, made up for a commitment to play the game, to work the system, to engage political authorities, and to believe that in doing so, um, it was both a Jewish moral imperative and decidedly American. Um, I guess I'm inclined to say, um, if I had to sort of attend to one extreme or the other, I'd say they played the game well. Um, it, they, they just were able to marshal the kind of discipline that few can in order to achieve their interests. And um, uh, it's, it's an impressive achievement mm -hmm. with, with, with many, um, um, uh, I should say, deleterious consequences. Yeah, and I might reframe the question. Um, first of all, I, I would never, I would never say that the way they operated was parasitic. Um, mainly for the reason that David said they, they were playing. They were they were playing by the rules of the game. Um, and so that's they still. I mean, as in every community, there are some people who violate the rules of the game. Yeah. In every community, there are crooks and frauds. Frauds, and there, there, there are notable examples of that. But that really doesn't distinguish this community from any other um, a segment of American society. For the most part, right? I mean, the, putting the, the the crooks and the frauds to the side. I mean, the, the the success of the village is not attributable to that. The success of the village is attributable to playing by the rules of the game. That still leaves open the question of whether this is something to criticize. But what I would say is, if you think there's something wrong with doing that. It's really important to enlarge, right? That then the object of criticism shouldn't be the Sotmers who are playing by the rules of the game. The object of the criticism should be the game and the rules, which is an American game, right? And, and here when I would say, you know, David said something that I strongly agree with. Um, in fact, this is the title of one of my next scholarly projects. There's a blind spot in liberalism. But there's also a division within liberalism. There isn't, there's more than one version of liberalism. Um, there, are, there, there, there were 
and there still are fishers in American society. <laughs> Newsflash. <laughs> um, competing visions of American uh, foundational principles. Right? So just as within Sommer society, there were fishers and there's this succession battle and there's no less than three now competing camps, um, each of whom claims to sort of be more Sotmer than the Sotmers. They have the real vision of the principles that the Rebbe stood for. So too, in American society, there are competing visions of what American stands for. One vision, which was fortuitously for the Sotmers, going into retreat in precisely the time period when the village of Curious Joel took rise, is probably the vision that most people here grew up with, an integrationist vision, right? It's, it's sort of Brown versus Board, the, 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 the public school as, as a melting pot, where people of all different races and nationalities and religions share a space and are inculcated with common values and have a sense of a right that integrationist vision into that that's one vision of america of liberalism it's a vision that entails serious limits on individual freedom it's a vision that entails duties as well as rights as well as freedom uh, an obligation, a sense of the commonweal, a sense of obligation to others. That is a vision of America that many of us grew up in. And that vision was being assaulted from both the left and the right. I mean, that is the Reagan era story, right? On the right by so-called, you know, I would say pseudo-libertarianism, right? That it's all rights and no responsibilities to others. It's a credo of selfishness. So whether you're talking about individual selfishness and greed or the interest, you know, the idea that interest groups, that the rules of the game are you advocate for the interests of your group and you have no obligation to anyone else, that, that was really becoming the ascendant view. And they benefited from that. They played by those rules. If we think there's something wrong with that, that's a criticism of that version of America. And I think maybe it's a call to, 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 to reclaim a more integrationist sense of America and a sense of a commonweal. Right. I just want to add one, um, one uh, brief comment to that. And that is, you know, to sort of pick up the challenge of your question, we had different sensibilities towards the community. I would say variations on a theme. As a student of modern Jewish history, I'm always interested in groups that seek to assert a strong form of collective identity on the landscape of modernity in the face of very powerful countervailing forces, ranging from totalitarian attempts at extermination to liberal assimilation. So I'm intrigued by communities that assert a strong sense of cultural self. I like that. To pick up the challenge of your question, I'd say precisely tonight, as there's a hearing on January 6th and what happened there. There's a sense that I have, that I didn't have when I began this project, 
that there have to be limits to that degree of self-segregation and siloing and some return to a sense of common values that this country represents or else we're lost. And that obtains for communities like Curious Joel, whose sort of integral life I, you know, admired from some level because it was that strong form of uh, collective cultural identity. But in very recent times, my own perspective on not just the viability, but the virtue of that degree of self-contained uh, cultural identity uh, that uses the levers of power, but doesn't fully participate in the commonweal. I see it differently. And when what, to live near them and among them, even when one is um, conditioned to be sympathetic to them because they're your brethren and you love them and you benefit from them, is to live with that tension because they would admit that they evince really very little care for the public good beyond what they can take from it. Yeah. And our my experience, and this was generally the experience of my community, was that they played to the limit of the rules of the game, yeah. and then beyond it, when the rules of the game did not give them enough space. The next property next to the first shul that I was in before we sold it to the Sotmers, because they were the ones willing to pay the highest amount of money so that we could build a synagogue in a new part of town three miles away, which by now, 13 years later, they are also reaching. Mm -hmm. I was in, in Monroe a few weeks ago for a tragic funeral, some people know, and I could not believe the extent to which the expansion from way over there in Monroe was now reaching the, the center of the town of Monroe. Then the property next door to us was a cemetery, one of the extra cemeteries of the dissidents. How did it become a cemetery? They applied to the local zoning board to whether or not they could found a cemetery in this property. The answer was no. Someone died in the middle of the night. They buried him at one in the morning. By the morning, that was a cemetery, right? Because um, at the beyond the line is the is the ethic of when one needs to, when one is pushed by a value beyond just playing by the rules is to ask forgiveness and not for permission. Um, and I say that's also someone who admires the way they were able to um, speak and act univocally for something that, that they really believed in because we as general liberals in liberal Jewish community sometimes fall down in trying to bring us together in, in a single voice. And it was also a sense of, 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 of pasnisht, of, of that shouldn't be the way Jews get things done yeah. in the American system. It's important to mention, this is not Mouvan Meilab, this is not self-evident. There are people within the community who believe exactly that. There are those whom we call dissidents who believe that uh, the use of power, the deployment of power by, uh, by the mainstream faction is a violation of every rule in the book, mm -hmm. Jewish and American. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, uh, some of those dissidents have gone to court with the intent to dissolve the village. And as we uh, re re recount in the book, almost achieved it. Um, maybe nobody can say a word about it. Almost achieved that goal uh, of dissolving the village. But when afforded that opportunity, pulled back, which raises the question of whether their opposition to the, that which they call a theocracy is principled or emanates from the fact that they happen to be in the opposition. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that question, but maybe, no, maybe, maybe you want to... Well, oh. I think did you want to... 
Yeah. Just repeat the question with those on Zoom. Oh, yeah. Um, so the question is, um, as the community grows in size, will it be difficult to hold together that sense of core, uh, keep at a bit, keep 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 at uh, at, a, at a distance forces of uh, the outside culture. Um, so one of the claims we make in the book is that this decidedly insular community undergoes a process that we call unwitting assimilation. There's a, an assimilation certainly of um, legal and political norms uh, that have really transformed the community. One of the most sort of compelling uh, affirmations of this point was when uh, the person who essentially runs the, the, the town, um, the town administrator, told me years ago, we've become a two-party town, like a two-party system, referring to the existence of the two main uh, camps who follow the two grandnephews of Rabbi Joel Teitelbaum, uh, who vie for control over the entire Sodmer Kingdom, the global Sodmer Kingdom. Um, and he was referring to the fact that, you know, there are elections and a famous election in 2000, you know, the dissident candidate almost won the election. Um, but there are many ways in which, notwithstanding the declared opposition to assimilation, there's a process, an unarticulated process of assimilation and it affects things like fashion norms uh, that are imported into the community, um, which would not be visible to, you know, perhaps many of our eyes, but are very, very um, important, especially for women. Um, the game changer, Eddie, is the internet. There's everything else on one side and there's the internet. And it is the source of the greatest fear um, articulated by village leaders, because you can exit the community while staying in the comfort of your home. And that happens all the time. So there are lots of people whom I encountered in Kirstol who say um, and believe this is the most beautiful form of life you can imagine. The integrity of life here, the ability to live according to our master's teachings. It's unsurpassed. Nothing you know can beat it. And there are people who are residents of, of the town who, by all external appearances, are good, upstanding Satmarchasidim who have completely checked out, like who live a world just beyond the community. They read secular literature. They may, you know, they, they watch videos and, and visual material that are prescribed. They use the internet in violation of the general uh, principle that you should use it only for purposes of economic livelihood, um, and they have completely checked out. And I, I, one of the most interesting things, it was sort of the sort of the the, the central um, point of interest in um, in a Haaretz review of our book in Hebrew. Um, uh, it sort of exaggerated the import, but like there are guitar strumming and pot smoking satra chasidim in Kiryastro. And there are also ex satra chasidim in, in the, Monroe. And there's then there, some who and then there are the exodus. Right. That's the other piece. And then there are the exodus, those who have actually left the community, which is a deeply jarring proposition because it means what well, has meant until now really leaving behind your family and oftentimes your children. Um, that's beginning to change in interesting ways, but I don't know me and Adam may want to jump in. Just to jump in, one of the most interesting Jews that we met in Kiras Joel, we, when, when the synagogue moved to this new part of Monroe, we, we built, Javi and I, a home <laughs> in a new neighborhood that was going up. 
and the neighborhood was a economic real estate relationship between uh, secular Jewish realtors and Satmer builders. So the builders of our home was a guy named Saul Eckstein, who looked and dressed and spoke like a Satmer, um, and was in, in very, very successful businessman. And not only was he Satmer, but all of his subs were Satmer. So I remember speaking to the plumber one day about something about you know one of our bathrooms, and then we finally had to have a meeting. And you know on the phone, this plumber sounded like every other Satmer I'd met, and then I met him. And he was wearing a Grateful Dead t-shirt, and he had long kind of like 70s hair and wearing jeans. And he was looking forward to the meeting because he knew that I was going to look at him and have no idea what to make of him. <laughs> and he was in business with his brother, who is still a Sotmer. This is actually a rare case. So he was still living in the area, totally not from, ate trafe with no compunction, in a plumbing business with his brother from Kiraz Joel. And he was enjoying toying with me as I was trying to figure out who he was and where he had been and what he knows and how he had made the decision. Um, and he was the one who set up the plumbing in our, in our, in our new house. So, yeah. I just want to sort of jump on that, but complete the idea, uh, complete the, the thought. The internet will lead to higher rates of exit. There's just no question about it. And in reaction, there will be an expanded, intensified commitment to populate the ranks of the true Satmer mm. community. So you see both of those vectors um, occurring at the same time and in direct tension with one another. Sort of that anxiety will lead to a redoubled commitment <clears throat> to expand the ranks of the community, such that estimates are that in 15 years, uh, the community may reach 15 to 20 years, the community may reach um, anywhere from estimates are 75,000 to 90,000 people. So a phenomenal rate of growth. And all expectations are that that you know those who are in the community will be Satmar Hasidim, or it's increasingly likely there'll be other similarly from Jews who come for the infrastructure of the community. But it's also very likely that the number of exiters will increase. So both of those things, and, the, both those demographic developments. And the primary enforcement mechanism is the schools. So almost everyone, basically with the exception of um, children with special needs, attend the public school that was created precisely to be able to deliver special education to children in the Satmar community, which is publicly funded and publicly administered, so it can't, or long story, but <laughs> it, for a, a limited period of time, the Supreme Court said couldn't be provided inside private religious schools. But all other children, right, the boys go to yeshivas, the girls go to girls' religious schools, and parents sign a contract. So your kids' continued tenure, as it were, in school is conditioned on complying with a host of requirements. And prohibitions. And prohibitions, first and foremost, the prohibition on the use of the internet. So that is the enforcement mechanism, right? Um, and we also see this playing out, um, you know, in cases where um, parents have divorced um, and one of the parents is, wants to move away from the community. I mean, in a psychological sense, whether or not physically. Um, and again, 
I mean, it's both a combination of um, family law decrees, so-called spiritual custody decrees, but that is very much intertwined with the recognition that the schools require the parents to conform their behavior outside of the school to these strict requirements. Um, so that's a very interesting... Yeah, and those contracts, which every parent of a child who attends uh, a, a private religious school, the overwhelming majority of, of the kids in the community, in a community that is dominated by children, um, those contracts are very often honored in the breach. There's a kind of game going on here, kind of game of chicken, um, you know, with the constant uh, surveillance of the Vadat's News, the Modesty Committee that regulates uh, adherence to religious norms, sort of having its own network of informers in the community. Did X have a smartphone? Did it have a filter on it? And, you know, people with things like smartphones are willing to sort of push beyond uh, the communal norms, um, in it, which makes Kirish Joel its own very interesting laboratory for sort of the unfolding of modernity. Like in their own way, there are people who are pushing boundaries that you wouldn't think, it, especially with respect to smartphones and use of the internet. The consequences of being caught and called on it are extreme. Having a kid expelled from school is an extreme form of punishment. Um, but there's a sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know sort of with depending on your standing in other ways, you know, the community, communal authorities might look the other way. So that's something that happens about things like smartphones. What also happens on the part of some Satmarchasidim is eye rolling. Like, oh, there they go again. Another Khumrah. I mean, come on. But I, I heard that articulated as well. Um, all of which is to say, and I think, you know, Adam, you gave voice to this with your, uh, I can't remember, Shmuk Tzadik, uh, juxtaposition. There's a tremendous range of people in this community of, you know, seemingly homogeneous summer chassidus. I mean, a tremendous range. Some are super smart, withering, ironic, connected to the world. Um, you know, so delighted to sit down and talk to someone like me who's interested in their history, um, so interested in hearing what do I think of their community. And there's some people, a lot of people, who couldn't care less about my presence in the community, have no interest, and don't find it valuable or important. And before the intern... How what? How is the book received by the community? The book? Um, in theory, no one should be reading it. Yeah. Yes. So the interesting thing is there, there are three, as Nomi mentioned, streams or strands within the community. One follows the chief rabbi of the community, Rabbi Aaron Teitelbaum. The second is the chief dissident community that follows the brother of Aaron Teitelbaum and the person whom their father sort of designated as uh, the emperor of the realm, uh, Rabbi Zalman Leib in Williamsburg. And then there's a third strain um, that doesn't follow either of them because they follow the original Rebbe. They're called the Menei or Benayol, the sons of Joel. And I had contact with all of them uh, because most of the Zalis. Because they would say, "Whom did you speak to? You spoke to an Aroni? 
Okay, where's Ollie's? You got to now find the real story. So sit down and we'll tell. But that was a real advantage, the fact that there was this rift within the community in terms of gaining access. Surprisingly, I've heard from two of the two main uh, representatives from the two main uh, strands, and, and I, would I would have thought that if one liked it, the other wouldn't. And that hasn't been the case. Um, the people whom we've spoken to have, um, you know, have, have liked the book, actually. They have enjoyed the fact, in one case, that someone treated the community fairly, and in another case, someone treated the community critically. And those people were the same people. Hmm. Um, it's really funny. We, we heard from one person from the Zali world, the, the chief dissident world, who would call in and leave voice messages like every two days or so. I'm 70 pages in the book. It's not bad. Hmm. I read another 25 pages. You really got that right. My hmm. wife says it's good. 30 pages later, my, you know, two days later, my wife says this is really good. Um, so that's sort of what we've heard so far. With completely Yiddish syntax. Set against you know the fact that most people are not going to read it, believe they shouldn't read it, and in some sense would be uninterested in reading it. Hey, we have time for one or two more questions. Could we do want to end at a reasonable time, Bob, and then Paul. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just repeat the question, maybe. What? Just repeat the question. For oh, the yes. Zoomers. So the question um, is particularly in light of the rise of a, the broader religious right um, is how unique is Curious Joel? Is it unique or is it kind of a playbook for other communities? Um, so I'm going to do an on the one hand, on the other hand answer. Um, first of all, there are um, elements of the Christian right who absolutely have treated it as a playbook. So some of you might have heard of the book, The Benedict Option. Uh, the, no, what, is that what it's called? The Benedict Option, which is written by Rod Dreher, who's a very popular, um, very prominent kind of thought leader of the Christian right. And The Benedict Option was his prescription that Christians should um, cease to be so overly involved in, in politics and they should withdraw into more separatist enclaves um, and not sully themselves with the outside world, kind of return to a more quietist, separatist posture. And he has an entire chapter. He doesn't specifically refer to the village of Curious Joel, but he portrays, right? It's, it's, it is very explicitly about uh, he probably refer, referred to them as ultra-Orthodox Jews and these and the villages that they have created and basically saying that's what Christians should do. Um, and of course there are many, you know, the, the, the Satmars were not the first, they did not invent this private pathway. Um, you know, the most large-scale example would be the Mormons, right? Um, there are many communities, you know, they, there's, there's a whole catalog of of local governments, towns that were founded by homogeneous religious communities, usually Christian. Um, many of them started off as like Bible camps and summer resorts, and then they became year-long 
year-round communities. So, I mean, in a certain sense, it's commonplace. Um, and, and there is a playbook, right? First, buy proper, private property. <laughs> Second, settle it, you know, densely. Third, you know, follow the rules. Every state has, you know, how did, how did West Hollywood become a, 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 a municipality, right? You, state law prescribes, and it's basically majority vote, you know? So um, on the other hand, it's really important to note that not every community has an equal opportunity to do that. Um, number one, right, the private pathway to political empowerment depends on access to capital. Not every group has equal access to capital, right? And obviously, we're talking not only about socioeconomic disparities, but race, right? So, you know, in this very same time period that the village of Curious Joel was formed, there was a movement in the Roxbury neighborhood of Boston, predominantly African-American, you know, basically follow that playbook, right? And create a town, a, a separate municipality that was gonna be called Mandela. Well, that failed. And not only did it fail, it was, you know, stigmatized, you know, this is black nationalist separatism, that's a separatism is bad, right? So apparently if you're African-Americans pursuing a separatist project like that. So it's not only um, unequal economic resources, there's also just above and beyond that racism, right? That, that, that prevent certain communities from being able to get the loans or get the mortgages or buy the property, even if they have the money. So it is a model that can be and has been followed by other communities before and after the Somers, but it is not a model that all groups have access to. I would just say it's a very easy template to follow um, if you have the requisite capital and discipline. For example, according to the laws of the state of New York, you need 500 residents who want to occupy a space no more than five square miles. That's what you need. You would imagine that you know, very strongly ideologically committed discipline groups would follow that template and do it, especially you know, in the America of today when we seem to be so fractiously divided. It's, it's actually something that I lose sleep over, like thinking of what kinds of groups could show up and follow that playbook and establish their own uh, municipality. Uh, but access to capital is important and manifesting that kind of discipline uh, is, is not commonplace. And versions of it are happening in other parts of Orange County, New York, and also in Rockland County, New York. So when I was in high school, Rockland County had lots of reform synagogues and conservative synagogues and Orthodox presidents presence. And now it's very hard to be a non-Haredi Jew in Rockland County, yep. New York. And it, the vision at Sir Hasidim are doing their own version of it. There's a, I don't know if it's a town or village of New Square, New York, has nothing to do with um, you know, four right angles. It's the square Hasidim who created a town akin to Kiras Joel and uh, with similar uh, issues of conflict between them and their Jewish and their non-Jewish neighbors, basically becoming a, a fully uh, homogeneous reality in a part of New York that was once rather multicultural. Yeah. Uh, in fact, 16 years before Kiras Joel, New Square was the model. Mm -hmm. The difference is, uh, 
1961, New Square was incorporated after Rabbi Tversky brought his followers in 1954. Um, it's interesting, you can distinguish between Hasidiyot. Um, Square did not have the kind of imperial ambition that Satmar had. Right? They, they, Joel Teitelbaum had a kind of grand imperial vision. Um, but there is a self-standing village of New Square uh, in the town of Ramapo in Rockland County. And in 1990, a bunch of Vishnur Chassidim established yet another village within the town of Ramapo called Keser or Keter. Um, and so this is a template that, that Haredi Jews have, have followed. Um, they understand that there are great costs to it, and it's interesting, just for a second, to juxtapose those uh, examples to other examples with which um, the, 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 the self-standing village is often confused, like Monsey, New York, or Lakewood, New Jersey. These are communities that weren't originally uh, created by, by Haredi Jews. Um, they were communities, you know, founded by Christians, which had overwhelmingly large Christian populations. Which, over time, because of their proximity to centers of uh, of stringently Orthodox life, became um, populated by large numbers of uh, of Haredi Jews, um, and that has led to uh, very uh, interesting and different kinds of challenges and tensions, most famously in the case of the East Ramapo School District, which was, whose school board was uh, was basically taken over by, by Orthodox and Haredi Jews, even though none of the school board members sent their kids to the public school. So two models. In one case, the Monsi East Ramapo case, uh, the school board is taken over by, uh, by Orthodox Jews who um, redirect funds to the public, the private school district. In the case of Curious Joel, they create their own municipality and then their own public school district. Right? It's a, it's, it's. There are two models that uh, should be distinguished, and both are interesting templates that I think we'll see more of in the 21st century. Paul, maybe last question. Well, David already answered. Ah, okay. Okay. So yes. By environmental, you mean? What exactly? Yeah, I, I thought you meant environmental as in like environmental regulations, because that's been a source of great tension between Kyrgyz Joel and its neighbors. Um, there's a sense that Kyrgyz Joel here doesn't play by the rules of sort of environmental regulation um, uh, as it grows at this extraordinarily rapid clip. Um, Adam's absolutely right that the number of apartments that need to be built in the year depends entirely on the number of girls graduating from uh, uh, from the schools. It's, you know, can be you know, you, you, you know, it can be uh, two hundred fifty. It can be four hundred. Um, uh, but some are girls um, marry and stay uh, next to their families. That's the that's the tradition. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what's what's developed is an interesting kind of competition between two capitals of the summer kingdom, Williamsburg and Curious Joel, notwithstanding the fact that there's constant movement between the two, constant movement. There, the you know, the Monroe bus line that you know sends eight or twelve buses a day um, uh, from Curious Joel to to Brooklyn, as well as to Manhattan, especially to the thirty fourth. <coughs> Some uh, of them buses with mechitzas on the bus. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Many. Uh, to 34th Street is 34th, 42nd Street, where B&H Photo is, which is a huge Satmar business. 
um, and indeed you daven on, on, on the bus with the mechitza on the bus. Um, it's interesting, and it, this was really striking to me when I um, was speaking with someone in, in Williamsburg. Um, they're, they're competing images of, of KJ in the community. One is of this, this sort of the original ideal of a, of a spiritual place because of the enclave nature of the society, because of the fact that it's completely self-contained. The other is the idea that these are Jews who become suburban and bougie, if I can use a phrase that my daughters would use, like in their sensibilities. I remember very striking the phrase, it's a gashmias a dickish shtetl. It's a materialist mm -hmm. shtetl. And those two images have always stayed with me. Like it, it, at the time that this person said this, very prominent figure in, in, in Williamsburg, Kiris Joel, like really around that same time, uh, Kiris Joel was reported to be the poorest community in America, according to the 2010 United States Census, 60.1% of the community below the poverty line. And just sort of the jarring juxtaposition between that data point and this image of a materialist but each I mean that so within the summer community the perception is they're different um but as David said there's like complete it, there's just a contradiction right so one version is this is a much less materialistic that 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 is the criterion by which they're distinguished right which community is more or less materialistic but you just have these two completely contradictory views, one of which is that Curious Joel is much more materialistic and bougie, and the other is precisely the opposite, mm -hmm. that by, you know, sort of withdrawing from the gritty city, this is the place that's much more spiritually pure and less materialistic. So who is to say? Which is... And a great place to sell your, to burn your chametz <laughs> on Arab Pesach. The whole town is essentially on fire in these enormous conflagrations that involves several different local fire districts to come make sure that the whole town doesn't go on fire. It's a sight to see. And if, I, if on most days, if you go shopping at the cask, here on Pico, you'll find a really ornately bottled, well-designed set of spirits and shlivovitzes. And if you look closely, it'll say, distilled through a sock in Kiryas Joel. Doesn't say sock, but I'm sure that's how they make, that's how they produce it. And it's a pretty good shlivovitz, and it's made in Kiryas Joel. Wait, I just want to, if I could just, one final thing, we're, we're not so good at this. Like, ideally, we would be sitting here signing books, then you would be buying them with great relish. Uh, we don't have the books. If you're interested in buying the book, it's called American Shtetl, Go to the Princeton University Press website and use the discount code. Use the discount code. Fran has a copy of it. We should have brought it. Thank you. Uh, use the discount code, which is SHTL, an abbreviation for Shtetl, SHTL. And I think you can get a 30% a discount on the book. Thanks for coming, everyone. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.